how we come to relationship in general, as many of you know, because some of you in here are psychologists and you know, well-read in many uh, domains, uh, but how we typically come into this world is kind of wide open, right? And anybody who has children knows that, that moment um, when you kind of come into the world and there isn't really much of a separation between you and your, of course, mother, right? But also kind of, it's like this, this very wide and almost global attention in an infant. And it's very relaxed often, uh, unless they have you know, some horrible birth trauma. But often when you look at a, at a baby, you see this really relaxed gaze and this really relaxed disposition. And of course, in an infant, you will also observe things like their breath is typically varied. I don't know if you've ever seen this. It can be pretty freaky when you've never seen this, how infants breathe and then they kind of stop for a moment and then they take a big breath in and then nothing happens for a while. And the reason for that, of course, is that within our body and within our nervous system, we know how to do these things, right? So breath work is something that we have created as a means of trying to induce our bodies to do what our bodies can do naturally. Because our bodies know how to do that. But as things like shocks and traumas and, and you know, stress and overwhelm and all of these things happen in the system, uh, we often lose the ability to uh, regulate our breath according to our metabolic needs, which is what we typically do. We breathe as we need for the amount of oxygen our system needs in that given moment, which of course means if you're sitting still and meditating or you're resting, you need less oxygen than when you're running or doing an activity. And so this whole idea, this is one of the, the things that we're working with, of course, in nonlinear, this whole idea that you always should take deep breaths and that you should always take these long ah, kind of exhales is essentially messing with the natural system. But often we have to mess with the natural system if our system isn't able to regulate itself. And so a lot of the things that you hear and see, now we're talking breath, but this is in other domains as well, has to do with um, us trying to somehow induce our body in the things that our body knows how to do naturally. So there's always two ways to go. And one way is to acquire specific techniques that allow us to induce states to the nervous system. Like for instance, some people do that long <sighs> kind of exhale, which is one way to do it. A much more effective way is a double inhale followed by an exhale. Sounds like this. <sighs> so that you know that all if you've ever cried and then you're like, or your kids have cried, and you're like, <gasps> Uh, that's actually a normal physiological down-regulation response. So there's things like that we can learn when we need it, long, slow exhales, or a double inhales, long, slow exhale, or certain kind of breath patterns that when in a pinch um, influence the system. We can also, what is commonly now called, rewild our system, meaning we can come back to nature which is what we are attempting here is to, and tomorrow morning we'll actively work with that, is to bring our system back to a state where our system knows how 
to do things naturally. And nonlinear, of course, is based on the entire uh, premise that we can rewild not only in the realm of breath and how we metabolize oxygen, but also in how our, our body can release um, you know, holds, and what I mean with holds is freeze patterns, moments of shock that we kind of held on to, um, areas where the nervous system is dysregulated because we never dealt with this. And then, of course, also uh, what we did today, interoception, meaning the ability to actually feel what's happening and then base our response on present moment understanding of the circumstances. And so when we look at relationship, like I said, we come in, we're wide open, we're connected to everything, so to speak. And then when you look at developmental, uh, you know, biology and developmental psychology, it is assumed different schools of thought have different theories here. I'm just giving you a very broad overview um, because, you know, that's all we need. But it is assumed that at some point we realize that we are actually separate humans. And anybody who has children, once again, I'm sure you just went through this again, knows the, the, that moment of what is called individuation. No, mine, no, you know, that is the moment where we, for ourselves, um, realize, no, we, we have no's and yeses, we have likes and dislikes, and we also are separate from our parents and separate from other people. In that individuation, there's of course always a whole bunch of other things that happen. And one of the things that happen is that of course when we individuate, which some people say is around two, I tend to think it's a bit earlier when you look at how kids react and when you think back at how things um, affect your life. But somewhere between birth and two, it, you know, comes that moment where you realize you're your own person, things happen to you from the outside and you have a certain effect on the outside by your actions. That's a very pivotal moment, not only for human development, but also for relational development. Because it's that moment when we realize that we are at the mercy of other people, so to speak, and other people are at our mercy or at our influence. And that's the first moment where our relationship imprints are formed or can be formed. And, the, uh, and in that moment, of course, we often have a very specific impact where, let's say, and this is also, of course, normal and healthy, we want something that our parents don't want us to have. I want a pony. Uh, you know, maybe not, no. Or I want to drink bleach. No, maybe not. So there's this very interesting thing where we want something or we don't want something and it's overridden. And so because of that, we sometimes have an odd relationship with boundaries. It's very hard for a parent to establish proper boundary function in a child because where do you begin and end, right? Just because they want something does not mean they should have it for a number of reasons from health danger, financial things, developmental things, whatever. But so we have an interesting thing around boundaries where we don't always have proper boundary function. Now, of course, if things like 
transgressions, abuse, uh, parents not knowing how to deal with things, physical punishment, you know, all of that plays into how well we are taught to have boundaries, how much of our boundaries when we had them were acknowledged, how often they were transgressed upon, in which, in which way they were transgressed upon. And then to make things even more complicated, what we perceive at age two is not necessarily what happened, right? That also plays into that, which is something that when you work with people in the field of psychology, in the field of trauma, sometimes very difficult to work with because you have to take their word for how it felt. But then when you do, let's say, do family work where you actually see the, the parents, they sometimes have a, a totally different idea and they're not wrong. It's just perception and how we see ourselves and how we see ourselves as the center of our universe versus what other people see us at. And all of that plays into this really interesting thing with boundaries. So regardless if you were taught proper boundary function or not, regardless if you have traumatic experience around boundary function or not, having proper boundary function as an adult in all relationships, not only intimate relationship, but all relationship is of course really, really important because as many of you heard me say this before, right? Your, your yes in relationship is only as good as your no. So when we talk about boundary setting, we're looking at um, establishing full-bodied yeses and full-bodied noes, not only full-bodied noes. And uh, we're also looking at how do we say no without having to close our relationship down which is a very big thing. Typically, when we say no, we shut the relationship down, either because we have to close our heart, so to speak, uh, in order to say no, or we don't want to feel what the other person thinks, or we don't want to feel what we are feeling, you know, all of those things. So one of the big things that play into having good relationships is proper boundary function. Because we get imprinted for a relationship at an age where we don't have appropriate judgment of the circumstances. Often our love imprint is an imprint of whatever we got the most. And that is not necessarily what love is as an adult nowadays. Meaning, let's say you had a hypercritical mother, right? Not that that has ever, ever happened to anyone, but let's just say you have a hypercritical mother. Um, you start to associate her attention, which is the criticism, with love. So to you, on some level, love is criticism. Well, guess what? When you then choose a partner, some of that lurks around, right? Some of that perpetuates itself where even if you say consciously I want a partner who affirms me and gives me praise when they actually give you praise you go you don't mean it you know if you would really love me you would tell me what's wrong with me or or you go oh this is really lovely but I can't feel it Steve and I always joke about this not having a chip for it meaning you don't have an opening for you know for the chip that needs to go into that opening because you weren't trained to be praised, let's say. Right. Or when somebody praises you, you think they have ulterior motives, so they're manipulating you, or 
Uh, it's not the right kind of praise. I don't know who of you here who works with people in a therapy coaching sense, I'm sure you have heard this before. It's like, well, yeah, he praises me, but not the way I need to be praised, right? As a classic one. Well, mm, you know, that's something to look at because in that mismatch, often it's our own imprint that keeps us from receiving praise because we learn relationship from our parents mostly if we were raised by parents and not by wolves then we see relationship the way our parents saw relationship or we don't want relationship the way our parents had relationship both of which the the you know the agonizing against it and the unconscious perpetuating of it isn't our own free choice of relationship and within that there's both the love imprint how we received it and there's also how we see people do relationship and therefore we want it like that or we don't want it like that so all of that plays into relationship and then of course once we've had one or two or more than that then those relationships have their own imprints that then perpetuate themselves in the next relationship and the next relationship and the next relationship where you kind of carry the old relationships with you and there's this long line of people holding hands behind you who you all once dated and from whom you still hold a bit of you know opinion or also positive things because sometimes you think still three, three relationships back at something that was really good that you're yearning for, even though that's probably not you know, available or no longer important. So, so all of those things are things that are useful to look at before you go into uh, relational exploration. Even if you're with somebody, it's good to look at this on occasion. It's good to kind of turn that over in both your mind and your body. When I was in university, we had university appointed analysis three times a week. That was absolutely heinous, I have to tell you. Three times a week, you'd have to go. Yeah, you had to go. It was a part of the requirement. Uh, because, it, I mean, rightly, it was assumed that if you wanted to therapize other people, you should maybe have your shit somewhat examined, uh, at least, you know, for a couple of years. And so, yeah, we did four years, three sessions a week. Yes, that's a whole other story. <laughs> let's, let's, let's say I didn't go down lightly. <laughs> because, um, you know, when, I think when you're 18... Uh, you have a different access to that or a different uh, position to that as I would have now. But that all said, uh, we don't only want to understand it. We actually want to once again rewild ourselves in the context of bringing our body to it, releasing what can be released. Let me, let me just make sure I understand this correctly so I can answer you properly. So... In the nonlinear, during the heart practice, you located the part of you or the part of your heart that you kept close so you couldn't or didn't have to feel what it felt like or what, what the implications of your brother 
attempting suicide felt like. And so in the practice, you touched on how you know, horrible that felt or how much you have suppressed around that. And so the question now is essentially, how can you touch it more easily or how can you let go of that need to not feel it? Or is it more like, how can you allow yourself to feel it more easily? I think the thing to say is that sometimes things happen that are just, that really suck, right? That are just, they're not understandable by normal measurements and they are not, they don't make sense within the context of our life, in, of other people's lives, the bigger picture of what we believe spiritually or otherwise, right? And things happen and there's, when things happen that are really bad, things that are painful, that are lost, that are dangerous, that are potentially life-threatening, that are life-threatening, right? It's very hard to face them all the way. The reason why there's people out there meditating their asses off day or night in some cave trying to be enlightened is essentially because what they would like is to no longer feel the shit as acutely and suffer as much from it. <laughs> right? That's really that's really what it is. Oh, let me have equanimity. Let me, you know, let me feel everything the same. And then when they've achieved that state, then it's considered that are these amazing enlightened beings who no longer give a shit that they're suffering. And there is something very poetic about that, but there's something also very odd about that because what, what it is that we're dealing with is essentially the human experience. And the human experience is very difficult. Right? Anybody who you've ever loved will leave you at some point through death or divorce or both or you know whatever. And, and everything we ever really desired at some point we won't desire anymore for whatever reason, us, other people and all of that. So it's definitely understandable that somebody would say, I want to escape this entire realm. I want to no longer care. I, I might be able to feel all of these things, but they no longer affect me. I'm no longer suffering as, as much as I am. And I can love regardless of how horrendous things are. There's something very beautiful in there um, on, if it's done right, right? But if it's just a denial of life, it can be kind of a, a pretty strong eye roll, right? So there's both in there. Some people are these beatific amazing practitioners who can really love in the middle of sitting in a prison in China or, you know, or their, their, their children dying or whatever. They, they don't lose the ability to love. And I think that's very beautiful. But when you no longer, when, you know, then you meet people who have this crazy spiritual bypass of, oh yeah, none of this means anything to me. What are you, a psychopath? <laughs> it's, it's just so, you know, it can go both ways. So, I think the thing to consider is you have a human heart and within that human heart there will be times where you can't deal with as much pain as there is if you allow yourself to feel something. And we tend to close towards certain things because we, there's only so much that we can allow ourselves to actually you know, feel before we have to shut it all down and dissociate or be mean and miserly and, 
you know, all the time because we, we don't allow ourselves to feel. So within that, I think there's always the capacity to love more and loving more means actually loving more, giving more love, but also love more then means being able to feel more of the things that are not that great. And I think when you see it as that being both things, it's a bit easier to work with in the context of understanding that as we turn towards things that are painful, that also deepens our capacity for the beauty or the love that we receive or the love that we feel for people. Because one of the reasons why you didn't want to feel your brother's suicide and why you didn't hug him, so to speak, right, metaphysically and physically, is because then you would have had to allow yourself to feel how much you actually loved him and how horrible it would have felt to lose him. And so when you go, yeah, I'm going to just put that aside, what you're saying, you are already dead to me, right? I'm already, I have already closed that door. So when it should it happen, and it will happen at some point, right? Um, either you go first or he goes first. But when it happens, it won't hurt as bad. And that, of course, is not true, right? So the, the, the quest here is, can you allow yourself to love him so much that you're willing to deal with the fact that it hurt, right? And that's not for the faint of heart, so to speak, right? And maybe that's only in increments. And also, there's no shame in not having done that because we only have so much capacity. And at some point, when you've had a certain amount of loss and a certain amount of pain, you kind of downregulate. And that's not horrible, it's just what is in that moment. But that's not to say that at some point when you have a moment like that, you just let a little bit more of that love in and then maybe oriented that love towards the relationship that is possible while it's possible. Right? Because often when we close a relationship like you just described, it's not because we don't love, it's because we love so much that it is better to not love than deal with the pain of loving and losing. Right? So it's always a, a play there as to how much can you turn towards, how much love can you let in and let out. And at different times, there's different things. And so in this specific thing, right, now that you felt it, maybe you can allow yourself to feel the abject terror you felt when you heard that he tried to kill himself and the abject terror you felt of having to um, deal with your family versus dealing with your own grief or with his grief, right? That's the other thing. Uh, because, of course, to actually allow yourself to feel why he made that step is probably also confronting some family ghosts. And, you know, so it's complicated because you're from the same family, from the same parents and all of that. So how you unravel it is not by going, why am I such a mean, closed bitch? Right? It's by saying, um, I love that much. Can I put a little bit of that love back to him and between him and me and see what that does? Right? And there's all kinds of stuff in there that, that nobody ever wants to say 
like for instance that there's probably you being pissed at him as well right because you Nobody wants to say, well, I'm really fucking pissed at my brother for trying to kill himself. How dare he, right? That's not politically correct or familiarly correct. But that's also there. And so the invitation there is to allow all of that to be felt. Not towards him, of course. You don't go to him and go, you selfish bastard. Right? You might think that for yourself as a means of acknowledging things that are there so that they don't have to be there anymore. You know? And then you can just love him a bit more than you have. Yeah. So essentially what it feels like is that there is a separation between you and anyone you want to be intimate with. And I'm assuming that it's mostly relationship, but maybe also friends and things. So when you are with people, you don't feel like you are as connected to them as you could want to be, let's say. So a few general things to say about that, and you were saying that you were doing some somatic experiencing with this, so I'm sure you hit on some of that too, is that if for whatever reason your, let's say, early imprints were such that um, you couldn't trust the people who cared for you with your safety, that's a fairly heavy-duty imprint. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean your parents were abusive or even neglectful or anything. It just means that in your interaction with the people who cared for you, things were not going as well as they could go. Right? There's a lot of uh, work recently because, uh, you know, it's always these fads in psychology. And one of the most recent fads is, of course, attachment theory, where you know, everything gets filtered through how you attach to your mother or to your parents in general, right? Um, and in your case, in what you're talking about, that is worth looking at in the context of did things happen in the early childhood? And attachment, typically, we're talking birth onwards, right? Where, where things happened where the people who were responsible for you staying alive didn't provide the level of safety that you needed, or you didn't feel that, that you were safe, even if they thought you were safe. That's why also attachment theory can be a bit dangerous as far as a one and only lens for your uh, well-being, because most people were born to people who never had a child before. <laughs> or many people were born to people who never had a child before or maybe had one or two children before young mostly right not so much now anymore but because people are older now having children but essentially we were we are born to people who are novices in raising people and under the best of circumstances you don't know what's up and down you and you have to also remember when you give birth of course all these crazy hormones and fluctuations and you're dealing with your own postpartum shit on top of you know the expectations of being a mother and whatever breastfeeding and you know so so no it's not that that's why that's a bit of a problem with the whole attachment theory thing no most people didn't have like the picture perfect. Your mother had you attached to her breast for the first three months in perfect bliss with no 
you know, with no disturbance. Yes, well, that's why I'm saying it. Who in here is a mother for a moment? Who in here has felt at least on occasion that you fucked up your kid? <laughs> yeah, so, right? We're imperfect humans. And like I said, I had a client. This was, this was one of my biggest ahas as a therapist. This, this, I mean, this threw me for such a loop. I can't even tell you. This guy had like a really horrible um, relational history and he didn't trust any women and he would pick women who were entirely unsuitable. And if he picked a suitable woman, he'd immediately get rid of her. And, you know, and, and things of that nature. And we plowed through his entire relationship history and we looked at everything, we looked at his you know, family of orange, origin and blah, 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 blah. We ended up, <laughs> I, I can't tell you how much this fried my brain back then. This was in my, I want to say, very early 30s or late 20s, right? So we ended up with a, the pivotal moment that he could pin his entire relational situation through many girlfriends and an ex-wife and it was that he was in the backyard. He was a toddler. He had just learned how to walk. And his mother was in the front yard washing the family car on a Saturday or something like that. It was one of those, you know, pristine American family moments. She was hosing down the station wagon because they were going to go to the lake or something like that, right? And Daddy was running errands, getting ice cream, and little Timmy, his name was not Timmy, but little Timmy, for the sake of the story, was in the backyard running around. He fell, and he skinned his knees, and he's laying on this, you know, like that, that weird concrete with the rocks in it. He could, like, he had, like, once we got there, he had, like, this really, you know, super intense visual of laying face down on these, I don't know what they're called. It's like, no, it's not terrazzo. It's like, remember they used to make these concrete tiles that had these little pebbles on top. But so he remembers feeling the blood running down his knees. It was very dramatic and very evocative. And he's looking at these pebbles and he's seeing the blood run between these pebbles and he's screaming for his mother and his mother is not coming. And in that moment, little Timmy decided that fuck women, they can't be trusted. When he really needed something and he was hurting, his mother wasn't there. And hence, he was never going to trust another woman who he loved to help him when he was in pain. And that essentially was the entirety of his relationship history wrapped in one fine moment of blood seeping through the pebbles in that damn thing. <laughs> I'm like... Okay, we brought his mother in. Lucky enough, she was alive and willing. And I asked his mother, this was a series of, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, contracting the story massively. Do you remember that day? And she goes, yes. Most horrendous day in my mothering experience. I, 
was washing the station wagon. We were going to go on this trip. My husband is getting the ice cream. It's the first time we're taking little Timmy out in the summer. I'm so happy. I'm washing the station wagon. I'm listening to music. I'm singing along. I didn't hear him. Eventually, I was wondering why he wasn't coming. I went back there. He's laying there screaming bloody murder. His knees are skinned. Um, she doesn't remember rivers of blood, obviously, because clearly there weren't rivers of blood, right? So they had this moment where he realized that there was no ill will on her end. On the contrary, she was deeply traumatized by that experience and always, and never ever sang and danced and washed the car and played the music and whatever, right? Because it was so horrible that she couldn't hear her little son scream for help, right? It's a heartbreaking moment. There was a lot of crying, a lot of crying. I cried, they cried. Yes, we, I brought her in at some point because he was so entrenched in that and he had created this entire story around that moment. And so I'm saying this to say, with the best of circumstances, it, it, it can happen. But here's the good thing about this, this whole, it can happen. It's not forever. You can go, I'm a grown woman. I can provide my own safety. Hence, this is why we deal with boundary setting. And this is why we deal with properly learning inside, um, you know, perception. So we can actually feel if something is actually dangerous or if we think it's dangerous from a past situation. That those are the tools that I'm talking about that make it so you become a sovereign human being and not a frightened little child. You, don't, you might never know if you were properly attached or not, if you're really not safe or not. It doesn't really matter because it could be a million things that happened or didn't happen or you perceived that happened or your parents really fucked up or you really fucked up, whatever. It doesn't matter. You can empower yourself in the proper sense of the word, not in the rah, rah, rah kind of, you know, we're also empowered, but empowered as in knowledge is power, skill is power, um, practice is power, where you go, okay, I'm going to learn a number of skill sets that will keep me safe by my own volition. And then I'm going to go and I'm going to sit across from somebody and I'm actually going to be able to not only feel them, but myself in relationship to them. So, and the, ste the steps there are essentially connect with your own body, know what your body says, interoception, right? I feel this. I have these emotions, I'm thinking this, right? You're able to do that, tracking. You track your internal sensations, emotions, and thoughts. Then you learn a skill set that allows you to translate the tracking of your internal sensations, emotions, and thoughts into action. And the action is yes, no. Hello, fuck off. Thank you, goodbye, right? W whatever. So you learn that, which is not that hard to do once you have proper internal landscape perception, right? You start meeting with people and you start filtering the experience, not by something that once happened a long time ago that's super nebulous and that's still producing a trigger of unsafety in your system, but you go, I know what to do. 
this feels good, I'm going to proceed till it doesn't feel good anymore. Or this doesn't feel good and I'm not going to doubt that. I'm not going to go, you're all fucked up, you should be with this person because you just are afraid of intimacy, which by the way is what a lot of people will play on. Right? They'll make you feel bad for not wanting to be with them in the ways that they, you know, they think you should be with them. And once again, when you're empowered to go, no, I actually just don't like you. It's not my fear of intimacy. It's you. <laughs> right? You don't have to say that necessarily, but you need to know for yourself. And so then what you do is you expose yourself to people in these situations and you can let your guard down based on the fact that you have skill and you have practice and you have knowledge, self-knowledge, as well as skill knowledge. And then you work from there. And then when you come up against something, let's just say now you're going on a date, you're sitting with this person, and now you're going, yeah, okay, I felt that old twinge, but actually my body says this is pretty good. And also, I just set a boundary so I know I can. Um, now, you know, do you want some ice cream? No. Uh, would you like some tea? Yes. Right? As simple as that. Okay, can do that. Hey, we wanna, you want to go for a walk? Yeah. Right? So you proceed one step at a time with yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. And then you'll notice when your system relaxes, you can also feel more, then you become more accurate in your perception, and then you can make better decisions. And you will also learn to only expose yourself to situations where you're capable of maintaining those boundaries. It's not that hard. You just have to hold your horses and not go into the dogma of how you should be and just go slow. And life is absolutely traumatic right every step along the way but that doesn't mean that you don't have skills or tools or that you can't make a choice about what you want and don't want you know you're definitely not at the mercy of your upbringing you know there is I know people and when I worked in that rehab you know there were people they had things happen to them that you, you can't even mention to people without them melting down and they did recover not everybody does some some people just don't have what it takes but there were people that recovered and they recovered to a point where uh, you would meet them and you wouldn't necessarily know that that's what happened to them yeah. well I'm talking about I'm talking about um, in the context of long-term drug abuse like people who've been on heroin for 30 years uh, you know, like that, they, their body just didn't cooperate anymore. Uh, there was just no way to recoup the bodily losses. Didn't mean that they couldn't get emotionally better, but they were people who their bodies just never really recovered. You know? um, that can happen. Uh, but you see that, and, and um, I was talking to somebody about this the other day. That I sometimes talk about this in the nonlinear um training there used to be a woman here in LA who used to go and do nonlinear with a group of Holocaust survivors women Holocaust survivors who were all in a um, retirement home together and that 
retirement only had these eight women in it that were left, right? Everybody else had died. And she did nonlinear with them on chairs in, uh, and on like walkers. And they were, they were so joyful. Those women were so joyful and they were like really feisty and, you know, were constantly complaining about something and fucking with this, with this woman who came to teach them. And then they did their nonlinear, which they loved. They called it something really, I can't remember anymore. That's why I was thinking about it. But, and then they'd have cake and then they'd play cards and then they go uh, line dance, right? And they, they had lived through the absolute worst of the worst of the worst. So it's totally doable. And um, you being wary of humans uh, as to opening yourself up to intimacy isn't that unusual in the context of, yeah, sh shit can happen and shit has happened. So you, you just got to really educate yourself as to how you yourself can make sure that you do due diligence. You know, doesn't mean shit couldn't happen, but most shit you can avoid by going, uh, I'm leaving, bye. No, right? For most people in most circumstances. That's not to say shit couldn't go wrong, but statistically speaking, um, you know, most things that could go wrong, you can prevent by learning some skills. <laughs> yeah. The things we desire or dream or want for ourselves are typically closely connected to our identity. So another way of saying that is who we are produces certain dreams and aspirations and stories. And most of us are driven by fulfilling those dreams and aspirations and stories, not only for the sake of our heart being fully given and fulfilled, but also for the, I don't know how to say that, for the affirmation of our identity. Because once we've reached the thing that we want to have, it affirms that we are who we think we are, right? So to speak. So most women, you know, at some point in their lives, had the idea of the, the wedding, right? You have the wedding, it looks a certain way, you look a certain way, your father takes you down the aisle, um, you know, whatever. You, the man looks this way, you, you, whatever. You have achieved a certain thing. And so that then affirms your worth and value as a woman, right? For most women, that's unfortunately still true where we somehow think that if somebody picks us and marries us, that makes us complete humans, which, you know, let, let's not even go there. Um, you know, but, but, but we do think that, and most people, once they get married, they realize that, oh, shit. <laughs> that is definitely not how it plays out. But, but it's, it's a developmental step. And we have many of those when we're done with university, when we've reached a certain quota at work, when we've made a certain amount of billions or millions or we're independently wealthy or we rebuilt the house in my case, right? I was like, when the house is rebuilt, everything will be perfect. Yeah. Two weeks later, a pandemic shut everything down. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it was like I had held my shit together for years 
three years to be exact, with that end goal and then the end goal happened and then the end goal totally didn't fulfill that that drive or that fantasy because suddenly whole some other shit went on. But that's what that's what we do. So when we look at dreams and when we look at things, we always have to measure or we always have to look at why do we want that? Is it because it's the it's the fulfilling of our deepest let's say talent or gift the thing that we want to give in the world you know in Jungian psychology there's this whole thing where they talk about uh, well it's not only in Jungian psychology I think he took it from Greek philosophy where it's this whole thing where you are essentially um, you have to cross the river the river of forgetfulness but before before you cross the river of forgetfulness into your next life you are given the task that you have to fulfill so that your life has purpose. And then you have to cross the river, river later, I think it is. Uh, you cross the river later and then you don't remember what that gift is. And then your entire life um, is essentially about finding what your gift is. Yeah. Right? So some dreams are about finding what your gift is and giving that gift. And some dreams are about affirming one's value and worth uh, as a means of solidifying who we are. And some are both, right? And so with the other two things where you go, I did it, I lived it out, that's typically then the thing where you go, okay, been there, done that, did something, but not everything, let's move on, right? Then you have other dreams where you go, whoa, I wanted that, but now I no longer want that because I'm a different person than I was back then. And then you have the dreams where it could be either you want to fulfill, like, let's say, your gift as the um, future matriarch of your family, in your case, oldest daughter, big family. Um, You walking down the aisle with your father means an enormous amount of things not only for you, but for all the generations past you and you know before you, and because you have a very strong lineage mm-hmm. context within your life and your upbringing. And some of it is probably also things you think you need to do so you're valuable as a human. And some of it is just your heart missing your father. Right? And so I think the thing to do there is to pull it apart. Right? You pull it apart, you go, what of this is obligation that's built into me from my lineage? What if that is my real heart's desire? What if that is just the dream of a you know, little girl who doesn't know that there are other things to life than being chosen by a man and walk down the aisle by a father? And it can, all, can be all these three things and many, many more that are all true but it's good to pull them apart. Steve often talks about pulling the strands apart in meditation, so they're not as powerful pulling. And I think that might be one way to go, is to examine the dreams as to what they, you know, what they represent. And uh, I think one of the things that I'm seeing now as I get older, and I'm not that old yet, but sometimes I'm like, you know, whoa, how the hell did this happen? How did I get to this moment in life? As you get older, more and more possibilities die, which really sucks. Like it's one of those really weird things when you realize that, you know, 
maybe I'm never going to go big wave surfing. Right? Yeah, that, it makes you laugh, but that was definitely, and I learned how to surf, and I had the board, and I did the thing, and I practiced, and I swam, and I did everything. And then I had a knee injury, and then I couldn't do it anymore. But I'm still in my mind on my way to big wave surfing, not having been on a damn surfboard since my knee injury, which was 10 years ago in March, right? So it's one of those dreams that will have to die, but that dream dying means a lot of things that are super existential, right? Like getting older, having injuries, not being able to do the thing that is like a surfing lifestyle uh, means and all of that. So I think there is a natural having to really take a good hard look at how shit really is versus how we want shit to be, you know? And, and that, I think, um, you know, is not, is not for the faint of heart either, you know? And that brings us back to where we started, where you sometimes don't want to feel these things. Yeah. And when you feel them, it's really horrible, you know? And unfortunately, there's no way out of it other than to pull it apart. Because, I mean, you know, like talking about the big wave surfing, yeah. I could just go surf on a day where it's not big and get back into it. Mm. But I don't do that because I have this idea of how it should be, mm. right? So I'm depriving myself of the steps before then in a certain way. Or I could just, I don't know, go to Hawaii and paddle around in the shallow water and enjoy being in the water or whatever, right? There's other things that would be possible if I'm stepping away from the identity of the thing that drives that motivation. Yeah. And also, I mean, God is what drives us, and that's not negative. We, we gotta have proper dreams of things to aspire, but sometimes, like you said, those things also have to die, you know? The gruesome and horrible deaths. <laughs>